0: So by now you've all heard about Bitcoin. It's not the only digital currency, or even the first one. There's eGold and LuckyCoin and Monero, and AuroraCoin and BlackCoin. And And have you seen that Doge meme? That random Japanese dog from 2013? Yes, someone even turned that into a digital currency. But having said all that, none of these ever really took off. They're really complex and annoying to understand and use, and they're often really unstable. Bitcoin is so bad, even The Simpsons made fun of it.
1: Krusty, are you broke? Yeah, all it takes is some bad luck at the ponies, worse luck in the Bitcoin market, heavy investment in
2: a
0: So none of these digital currencies have ever become a real currency, you know, something you'd actually use to buy and sell things. But there's something bigger at play here, and that's the technology behind them, the thing that makes it all possible. It's called the blockchain. But what is it? And why are some people saying it has the power to change the world? Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Josh Nicholas. This week, we're going to explore the blockchain, what it is and how it works. But the story starts a long way from where you might expect, not in a basement full of coders wearing hoodies or some big bank, but here.
3: You know, this year um, I'm growing chickpeas.
0: This is Emma Watson.
3: And there was a chickpea trader who came and offered a price to, um, to buy our chickpeas, but I'd never, I'd never heard of this trader before. Um, that price was around about $100 a tonne higher than the next um, market participant, so the next buyer... So I would have liked to have accepted that price, um, but I just didn't feel that I was confident in being paid.
0: The problem she's describing is really common to farmers here in Australia. For Emma, her safest option would be to sell to a big company, because she's more likely to actually get paid. But this way doesn't get her a lot of money. Her other option is to sell to random buyers. These are essentially guys that just drop by for a visit or pick up the phone. They're often willing to pay more, so this means more money for Emma. But there's no certainty. How can she trust someone who she's never met and knows nothing about? She's about to give over all of the valuable things she's grown. With no certainty. Do you often just get approached by just random buyers? Like, I, I, I don't know why, I always thought that, like, the buyer would just rock up to you with his, like, Woolworths shirt on and you go, okay, you're from Woolworths. I know you've got a huge corporation behind you. But no, they, they sound like they're just guys in, like, station wagons.
3: Um, so there's a variety. There's, there's, there's multinationals out there. You know, there's, there's the well-known Cargills and, um, you know, ADMs and the bungies that, you know, are, are very large on the international scene um, in terms of grain trading. And I'm talking mainly about grain at the moment. Um, but there are also our domestic, um, our large domestic buyers, um, like the Grain Corps of this world. And domestic end users such as um, Manildra flour mills is a a very large, um, the largest mill in Australia, large um, feedlots. So there's some very large buyers out there, but there's also a number of small buyers who just come and go in the market. I guess they're more opportunistic buyers. Um, and they're the ones that we don't know who they are as growers, but they're often the ones who are providing value because they see a particular opportunity in the market and they want to come in and seize that opportunity. But because we actually don't know who they are, we haven't dealt with them before, um, as growers, we should be naturally hesitant. Um, You know, history shows us that it's probably worthwhile to be hesitant,
0: Why is this trust important? Because I think for most people, we would think like, okay, if I grow wheat or whatever, and I, I've harvested, it's ready to go, I just give it to the guy and he gives me the money. Like, wh- why, why is trust necessary
3: in this? Unfortunately, that's not what happens. So um, what happens is that um, a grower basically spends their their whole day and their whole week, you know, their whole year, um, you know, as I say it sometimes, you know, imagine working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for 365 days of the year, and then delivering your entire year's work to, you know, one or more buyers and then waiting and hoping you get paid. That's essentially the situation that growers face in Australia. Um, Now, in the majority of cases, they do get paid, Um, I'm not certainly suggesting that, you know, there's um, uh, this this massive um, underpayment or um, non-payment problem. The majority of cases are fine, but there's a significant minority where, fortunately each year we've seen a number of insolvencies where growers have delivered their grain, they've lost control of the asset. The asset's actually co-mingled with with other grain. You can't segregate that that grower's grain. Um, And so when push comes to shove, they've got no grain and they've got no money either.
0: I called around a few farmers to see what this was like, how serious the risks are. Eventually, I got hold of Glyn Williams, a farmer in northern Tasmania. He grows a bunch of things on his farm, including potatoes. Talking to Glyn, you get an idea of how tough this situation is. He speaks so lovingly of his farm, of his way of life. But there's a precariousness to this. All around the country, farmers are doing it tough, and having to constantly worry about whether and when they'll get paid isn't helping
1: generation farmer. Wow. Uh, So the the farm is is at a place called North Mott, which uh, is inland from uh, the Bass Strait, waters of Bass Strait, about 10 k's inland. Uh, We've got an elevation of about 250 metres above sea level, and we've got beautiful views over the waters of Bass Strait and over up the town of Olberstown, and about 600 acres, which is a... of blocks uh, from various uh, various ancestors that, that I've been able to cobble together over the last 20 years, and uh, it's good country. It's it's got deep, rich, uh, red soils. The biggest unknown, and in some ways, just that is the biggest source of stress to the farmer because. Uh, don't know necessarily what you're going to get paid unless you've entered into some kind of contract. Mm -hmm. And it's for reasons of business certainty and that peace of mind that Tasmanian farmers have uh, on the the whole, they have developed commercial relationships with, um, you know, stage two manufacturers if you like, or processors.
0: How, like, how risky is this? Do you know of people who've who've not gotten paid, who've ended up just set, shipping off their uh, shipping off what they've grown and just never seen it again, never seen anything again?
1: Well, I have. I've experienced that myself. Uh, I was uh, persuaded mm-hmm. one day to send something uh, to to a guy in a, in, a new, in a new city, and uh, look, it all sounded very plausible. And uh, the first first shipment was was paid. And it was a really good price. And so I was pretty happy about that. Uh, And then there were more orders, and these orders, you know, come in at six in the morning, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, look, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, But, you know, after eight weeks, I hadn't been paid for the second and third shipments. Um, You know, you you send reminders, you do those sorts of things. And when you're busy, um, you've got to spend time to do that, of course. But did that and nothing happened and made phone calls and got certain promises and then I, I got a cheque for a hundred bucks and thought, well, gee, that's, um, that's not a good sign. You, you've got to ask yourself the question, do I sell to this person that I've just met on the phone uh, who wants a lot of product, which is extremely precious or or what do I do and, and that's that, that's another thing that uh, you've got to contend with um, in terms of the reliability of the, the voice on the phone to pay you for the product because we spend so much money to get the product away, I mean depending on the market it can be a good, good outcome but of course the strength of the market is only as good as the ability of the people at the other end to pay you for it. Mm.
0: But it hasn't always been like this. For a long time in Australia, there weren't a bunch of random buyers going to farms to buy produce. Certain farmers had centralized bodies that would just buy up everything. Usually it was backed by the government. It wasn't perfect, and it meant that farmers could only sell to one buyer. But it was trusted. They knew they were going to be paid. And this is where the blockchain fits in. The blockchain offers trust. Trust is a really common theme when you talk to people about the blockchain. Because the blockchain makes it possible to work with people without knowing them. You don't need a big name or a big company or a brand. It's all in the code. Here's Dr. Pip Ryan from UTS.
4: It's not so much that we don't trust the party with whom we're transacting on the blockchain, it's that we don't need to trust them. Because the blockchain has taken control of the things that the institutions that ensure trust. Now, the institutions that we have that ensure trust, openness, visibility, the transparency of the blockchain to everybody who's on it, makes it. It's as good as sunlight, which is always the best cleanser and the best um, antiseptic for any kind of fraud. If you come down a level to the kinds of transactions we do where we're dealing with strangers or randoms. And we do that all the time. Apple is a stranger to me, but its brand is so strong that I'm happy to hit download for a $2.19 song that I want to buy, or a $10 movie that I want to buy. Because I can see iTunes, Apple, it's a brand that I'm comfortable with. I'd probably give my details to Facebook and Google, but when you're talking about randoms and strangers we're talking about that person who's advertising their caravan on Gumtree or we're talking about somebody who's saying um, I'm gonna be running a Bitcoin exchange and investing those funds in a certain institution or I'm running a charitable crowdfunding program and I'd really love your contribution to help refugees so these are all projects or personal commercial transactions projects for good whatever they are they're with randoms and the blockchain instills a certain element of trust for part of that arrangement that's significant and of course there's always humans behind it so i'm not i don't want anyone thinking i have been drinking the kool aid (laughs) um i know the humans behind it can be rogues and fraudsters and scammers and that's human nature but there are also certain transactions where to all intents and purposes it's going to be trustworthy It's just the financial step or the transactional step could be improved and made more trustworthy by the blockchain.
0: So how exactly does this work? How does the blockchain introduce transparency? I put this question to a couple of different people trying to get a manageable answer. First, Nick Addison from Finhouse Labs. So I describe it as a peer to peer insert only data store that uses consensus to synchronize cryptographically secured data. So there's a lot of words to that, so let's <laughs> just break that down. So peer-to-peer, I think a lot of people are familiar with, you know, peer-to-peer. So as you can hear, the answer is really technical. These guys use so many words I didn't understand. It's almost like they weren't speaking English. Which talk to each other. So there's some protocol which they talk to each other. Insert only is is a rather unique property to, to blockchains that you can... But we don't need to know all that. Here's what you need to know. The blockchain is kind of like a spreadsheet. Just imagine a spreadsheet. Each new line in the spreadsheet is another transaction. And after a certain amount of transactions, the spreadsheet is locked and encrypted. But there's another twist on this. There's not just one spreadsheet. This spreadsheet is public, and there's thousands of versions of it on different computers all around the world. When you put all of this together, it means that you have a public record of what has happened for everyone to see, and it's locked. No one can change it. With that in mind, let's try another explanation of what the blockchain is. Here's Tim Lee
2: from Veridictum. The easiest way of describing it is... If I steal Josh's phone, yeah. okay, I take your phone um, and you then say, Come on, give him my phone back. I said, No, no, it's my phone. You, we finish up going to court and the judge says, Yes, you stole the phone, bang, no, you didn't. Yeah, and and the, the court of law decides what's, what's the truth. If we now imagine that there are 5,000 paparazzi because Josh is obviously so famous, (laughs) that the 5,000 paparazzi actually are taken a photograph of me stealing your phone, okay? That's pretty incontrovertible proof that I've stolen your phone, okay? Because if I want to change, if I want to change the facts or change the story, I've got to convince at least half of them, (sighs) right, that, that that photograph is incorrect
0: you have to get a majority of the paparazzi to either destroy or change their photos
2: precisely right okay but let's imagine that i have to get them to change all of their photographs within 10 minutes right and then at the end of that 10 minutes if i have not succeeded in getting them to change or at least 50 percent 51 percent of them to change the actual image that those image will be that will be put into a bank vault and locked permanently with a a combination lock that has more combinations on than there are grains of sand on the planet. And then just finally imagine there's a camera actually looking inside that shows you those images. Now, that is the blockchain, except instead of the the 5,000 paparazzi, you've got 5,000 independent computers that are actually combined together. And instead of the photographic images, you have that as a, as a piece of data. And the idea is that like the idea of all those images being locked away in a vault, with the blockchain, a lump of data is actually put into a block. What actually happens, those blocks, they're a combination of blocks that are cryptographically sealed together. And then the, the all those blocks of data are then lumped together to form a chain.
0: course there's so many things in the world where you can use you can transplant this too there are so many ideas oh, which you can and I mean that's where it
2: just it blows up I know I mean there are there are some great use cases outside of fintech yeah um, and I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of them that, that are particularly my favorite I think one is called um, Everledger out mm-hmm. of London this is actually run by uh, an Aussie woman um, called Leanne Kemp and what they do is they look at the provenance of diamonds and what they do is they look at 45 metadata points on each diamond. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, whether it's the, the shape, the, uh, the glean, number of carrots, whatever it might be. And it defines that diamond. And they then lock that to the blockchain okay. in terms of establishing provenance. The description of the diamond has been itemized and locked to the blockchain. So in okay, that way, yeah. you can be certain that there's. It's not a conflict diamond. It's, it's it's not, it's, that's yeah. right, it's not a blood diamond. And you can also be certain, ultimately, that the diamond's not been stolen. Okay, yeah. Because if the, diamond, if the diamond has been stolen, then immediately you can flag it on this system, and then if it comes up in the open market, nobody's going to buy it. Yeah. So the insurance companies are really quite excited by that. So that's, that's a really good use case. Um, the second one is, is one that I really like, which is a company called Scribe out of uh, Germany, out of Berlin. And they look at the provenance of pieces of art okay. So, and w- yeah, okay and one of the things that's really good about this is that you can actually identify um, the ownership and the date at which a piece of art was registered uh, or created through the time stamping and through um, uh, ultimately cryptographically hashing the information of ownership and the thing that's really interesting about this is that it gives digital artists the ability to sell limited edition prints. Okay, so okay, this is one of the so one of the fundamental things that the blockchain did
0: with Bitcoin and with cryptocurrencies is double spend. Yes. Is so. So just to explain that a bit more. So the the problem with an idea of a digital currency is that everything on on a computer, everything digital, is just infinitely replicable. Yeah, absolutely. So I could. If we if we made a currency which is just you know an image or whatever on the on the screen, and I gave you a thousand of them, within yep. seconds you could have a trillion of them because you yes. could just keep copying them. Correct. And so then there's just no control. So th- it just becomes worthless. There's there's Correct. no control over how many they're in circulation. You could keep using the same one to buy things. Yep. And that's what sort of the blockchain solved was that no, we now have a, a record of exactly how many bitcoins there are yeah we know exactly who owns them we can trace where they've all been and who owns them and the best thing is you can't send the same bitcoin twice correct so so this so if we transplant that to this what you're
2: talking about then is exactly the same thing is that's exactly right it it defines the provenance of the piece of art so then what it means is if you have a limited edition then, yeah, it, and it's a digital piece of work, yeah. then you can get an authenticated certificate that links in, yes, here's the agent, this is the piece of work, here's the details of the artist, this is confirmed on this particular date at this time as being an original piece of work. And then that enables a secondary market for digital <sighs> pieces of art.
0: And just like the blockchain can be used for tracing diamonds or digital art, it can also be used by a farmer, like Emma from earlier. When random buyers drop by or call her up on the phone, she doesn't need to know who they are. There's a public record of what happens. There are checks in place. Emma is actually working on something like this. It's a blockchain just for wheat farmers called AgriLedger. The farmers will have a record of everything that's happened. What shipped, when it shipped, who it shipped to. And there might be a way
3: of checking that the buyer can pay as well. A grower might be saying, "Um, I don't trust all of the buyers out there in terms of I don't know who they all are, I don't know what they mean to me, therefore I won't deal with them, I'll just deal with parties that I know. That's the kind of um, due diligence that they do. I've dealt with people before. Um, What blockchain does is says, if we can devise a system where that doesn't matter anymore, then effectively you can deal with anybody who can offer the service or the product that you desire.
0: We're only on the cusp of blockchain technology. Most of the ideas that are being floated around right now are still pilot programs or are still being built. We're going to have to wait to see how it turns out. In the meanwhile, not all farmers are on board. Here's Glenn, our farmer from northern Tasmania again. He's sceptical of how much the blockchain can impact his problems. As he points out, no matter how good the blockchain is, no matter how good a system we create there will still be people involved.
1: The system's only as good as the people that are there and compelling it. So, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 I've also worked off farm as a lawyer, Josh. So,
0: oh, OK. Yeah. yeah
1: so that, that's, you know, been something that I've, I guess I've become aware of. But if you've got small quantities, then the delivery, the order and the delivery will usually be provable. Um, if you're going to do things by phone, then it gets back to my theme of confidence yeah. So there are guys that I, 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 I have complete trust in now because of years of reliability, and so I know that when I send three items, I'm going to get paid for those three items within um, 60 days. Uh, there are others then I get really nervous and that blockchain idea effectively, um, I have to su- supervise that in my own way.
0: You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you heard, please rate us and leave a review. It helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.